Acts chapter 15 as we continue our journey through this book. We are not doing the whole chapter today. There's um, too much there for us, plus there's some really good things at the back end of this chapter that we will need to slow down and consider. So Acts chapter 15, let's uh, read together verses 1 through 29 and just get a flow and an understanding of this passage of Scripture. Just going to give you a little bit of a heads up this morning that this is kind of a a doctrinal passage. Uh, It's a a pivotal passage in the New Testament. It's a pivotal passage in the book of Acts. And so we're going to need to carefully consider what happens here as the disciples go to Jerusalem and kind of have this council to, uh, to sort of make a ruling on an issue, something that had become a big issue in the church. So Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, the word of God reads as follows. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, <clears throat> excuse me, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem... They were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And make no distinction between us and them, excuse me, made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitudes kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild, rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. 
but that we write to them to abstain, <clears throat> excuse me, from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses had has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, <clears throat> leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from among us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to us, excuse me, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Lord, please add your blessing to the reading of your word. And as always, Lord, we trust that you will be the one who brings the illumination and the teaching to our hearts. So, Lord, speak for your servants are now listening, for this is the word of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can see as we've concluded this first missionary journey in chapter 13 and 14 where Paul and Barnabas were sent out, and that's what we've covered the last couple of weeks, that as they went, the Lord opened the door to the Gentiles. Now keep in mind from a Jewish point of view, uh, they were the people who knew the scriptures. They should have known that the Old Testament is replete with references to the fact that God had a heart for the Gentiles just as he had a heart for his own people, the, the Jewish people. Remember, and, and this is important for us to remember, as we go all the way back to Abraham, whom the Jews said, he was the father of our faith. He was the one to whom God first spoke. Remember when Abraham was spoken to by God, Abraham uh, was not a Jew because there were no Jews. Abraham was a Gentile. And so they had forgotten that. And so as God worked through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we remember Jacob is the one who had his name changed to Israel. And the name Israel means governed by God. And God called out from among the Gentiles, a people for himself called the Hebrews, called the Jewish people. And they had forgotten all of that, and they had gotten to this place where they had so idolized the word of God that the, the scriptures themselves, rather than being the guide to the Lord, rather than being the word of God, became for them a, a, a law book, a, a book of rules and regulations. In fact, we often you know, think about the Ten Commandments. But you know, the Ten Commandments grew into 613 different laws and regulations. 
And you may remember the day that the, the scribes and the Pharisees were quizzing Jesus. They were so upset with him and they were constantly trying to find ways to, to prosecute him, to persecute him. And as they were speaking to him on that day, they said to him, Master, which is the greatest commandment? Surely, if you're really God, you know this. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And then later he went on to tell some parables, didn't he? About who is my neighbor and one of those being the parable of the Good Samaritan. And remember the Samaritan was a, a hated half-breed, a person who had coming back out of the, the time of the, um, where God had taken the, the, the nation into judgment to exile for 70 years. They had, had ended up intermarrying and so there were people who were half-Jews and half-Gentiles and they called them Samaritans. And they were just as hated, if not more so, than the Gentiles. And so Jesus said, it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, on all of these hang the law and the prophets. So there's all these things that are a backdrop to what we come into here today because the, the apostles had gone out preaching the gospel. They went to the synagogues first. And as Paul said in Romans chapter 1, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to the Jew first and also to the Greek because the gospel first went to the Jews. We know on the day of Pentecost, it first was declared to the Jews. And many Jews became saved. And we know, of course, there was a Jewish church that got founded there. And we've been reading about that beginning in Acts 2. What happened there is God had spoken to the Jewish church. And now uh, the gospel has begun to spread. And it's gone, as Jesus said, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts. And yet the Jewish per church and many of the Jewish believers were having trouble dealing with the fact that someone could have a relationship with God who was not conforming to what they understood to be the rules and the regulations that governed our relationship with God. And so in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we find the, the disciples and the apostles at the church in Antioch the church that had sent out Barnabas and Saul and they had gone out for roughly a year and, and done that journey that we read about in Acts 13 and 14. But as other Jews had heard about this as they had gone throughout those cities, they sent Jews back to the mothership, so to speak, to the Jewish church in uh, Jerusalem and they complained. So now in verse, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, And certain men came down from Judea, and notice what it says, And they taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they are coming in teaching a different gospel. Because up till now, the gospel that Paul had been preaching and that Barnabas had been preaching what it, is that it was salvation alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so these men came because they were upset about the gospel that Paul and Barnabas had been preaching. In fact, if you look back just a little bit in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 38, here's what Paul was preaching. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, capital M, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, 
Everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. You see, what they were preaching and teaching here in 15.1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This has really been repeated all throughout history. Not just from a Jewish perspective, but people have come along over the years and said, well, unless you're baptized, you can't be saved. Unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. And we have added to the basic requirement of the gospel from man's point of view, requirements. I know in, in my years of growing up, you know, I, was, I grew up and was saved in the church and you know, I happened to grow up and be saved in a Baptist church, nothing against Baptist churches. But in the, in the culture and the time that I grew up in the South, a church on every corner, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, you name it, was out there. And one of the things that always perplexed me was why are there so many different sets of rules and regulations depending on what church you go to? I mean, some churches were, they had dress codes. Women can't show any skin, you know, from here down and everything must be covered to the wrists and your dresses must be below your knees and if possible down to your ankles. And so there were churches that had dress codes. And these things have all taken shape and taken form and they've polluted Christianity. So the issue that is at stake here, the heart of the matter, is what is the gospel? And how is a person truly saved? And that is the issue that these apostles and these uh, elders and these brethren are dealing with. How a person is saved, how one is made right with God. You see, listen to this. This is one commentator said this. I can't say it better than him. This was not a matter where there could be disagreement among believers with some believing you must be under the law and some believing that it wasn't important. This was an issue that went to the core of Christianity and it had to be resolved. You know, so often the way we resolve things today is just saying, well, let's just agree to disagree. You cannot say that about how a person is saved. This is, there's only one way that a person can be saved and there's only one gospel. Verse 2, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute, a wonderful biblical way of saying they had a pretty big fight. When Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, with these brothers who had come from Jerusalem, and they declared this, they determined. And this happened, keep in mind, in the church in Antioch. So they determined, the church, that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So what do you do when you come to an impasse? What do you do when you come to a place that you can't agree and you can't see eye to eye? Well, on biblical matters as it pertains to the church, you go to someone who can help. And in a sense, this is sort of what Jesus described in Matthew chapter 18, which is if you can't resolve something, you take it to someone else and you basically submit yourself to that process. And you say, look, we can't work this out. We can't agree. 
So we need someone to help us think through this and to come to a place that we can agree. One of the things that was pointed out here in my reading that I thought was so interesting said that uh, Paul and Barnabas showed the hearts of true shepherds to confront and dispute with those who insist on promoting false doctrines in the church. They love the Lord and they love the Lord's people so much that they said this cannot go unquestioned and unchallenged. We can't just let people walk in here and teach whatever they want. It has to be according to God's word. So, verse 3, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused a great joy to all the brethren. Now, as, I th- as we think about this, you've got the people in this little entourage, as I understand it, who agreed and people who disagreed. In other words, you had the, uh, the apostles, you had you know, Paul and Barnabas, they were the ones who had experienced the, what they just experienced in Acts 13 and 14 as they went out and they preached the gospel. Then you also had people in this traveling party who were the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem who disagreed. So they're traveling and they said, look, as we're going back, we're just going to hit a few places here on the way back. So they stop at these churches, Phoenicia, Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. And notice what it says, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So those dissenting brothers were there witnessing what was happening. They they were probably sitting back wanting to stand up and preach the same thing that they had preached in Antioch, saying, wait a minute, no, 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 you guys have to all get circumcised. If you get in line right over here, we, we can help you with that. But they couldn't. They saw what was happening. In verse four, when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. So they came telling the same stories. Here's what happened when God sent us out. Here's what happened as you go back and read 13 and 14. Here's where we went and the difficulties we encountered, but that doesn't matter. What happened is as we preached the gospel, people believed. And we've established churches in all these cities. In fact, we would be hard-pressed to count the number of churches they planted because as they went, they just kept preaching and, and God just kept saving people. So they had this incredible journey. Now God is fulfilling what he spoke to them on the day of Pentecost to Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts. They are beginning in Acts 13, going to the uttermost parts. So God is doing this amazing work. And then in verse 5, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So there's this dispute, there's this strong feeling, there's this passion. Let me read something to you here. If the Pharisees believed anything, they believed one could be justified before God by keeping the law. We know that was incorrect. Jesus himself said that. For a Pharisee to really be a Christian, it would take more than an acknowledgement that Jesus was the Messiah. He would have to forsake his attempts to justify himself by the keeping of the law and accept the work of Jesus as the basis of his salvation. In Lystra, Paul and Barnabas did not allow the pagans to merely add Jesus to their pantheon of Roman gods. They commanded that they had to turn from their vain gods to the one true and living God. These Pharisees who had become Christians had to do the same thing. 
That is, turned from their efforts to earn their way before God by keeping the law, and they had to look to Jesus. You can't just add Jesus and now say, Jesus helps me to justify myself through the keeping of the law. Let me pause there. How many people do you know, perhaps some of us, have this idea that my salvation is dependent on my good works? You see, after we're saved and after God has done this amazing work in our hearts, where the old have passed away, behold, all things are made new. Yes, good works comes forth. James talks about that, but the good works come forth out of a full heart. The good works come because we're saved, not in order to be saved. And there's always this issue that happens. There are religions out there. There are even faiths that declare to be Christian faiths who are deeply rooted in a works-based salvation. And this is the very core of the issue that they were dealing with here, a works-based salvation. If we were to put it in simple terms, it's Jesus plus, in this case, getting circumcised and following the law of Moses. But we know that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Let me continue on with what I was reading. Paul, of course, was a former Pharisee who became a Christian, but he came to know that Jesus didn't help him do what a Pharisee did. Only better, he knew that Jesus was his salvation, not the way to his salvation. Paul wrote, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That's Galatians 2.16. So again, it's by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. In fact, Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, verse 6, a verse that many of us know well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, except by me. So verse 6 of Acts 15, Now the apostles and the elders came together to consider this matter. They, they heard both sides. And so they had to go away and pray and deliberate. Now as they did this, they had to consider these things. These were things they had never fully considered before. In verse 7, And when there had been much dispute... Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, now referring back to Acts chapter 10 and what God did in Peter's life, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, listen, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So remember when that happened. Remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter was up on the roof and God gave him that vision of all of the clean and the unclean animals that came down in those sheets. And as they came down each time to Peter, he was dealing with that. And he was like, Lord, you know, what is this? And God said, listen, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, not so, Lord. Disputing with the Lord. So Peter's dispute initially was with the Lord. He had the same issue before the Jerusalem council, but in the presence of God himself. 
And so as he was having this dispute with the Lord, the Lord just kept saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And while Peter was Pondering these things, we read in Acts chapter 10, behold, the men came front to the door from Cornelius' house. They're knocking on the door saying, hey, uh, the Cornelius the centurion sent us to come and ask you to come up and, and to be with us. So, you know, they came in, they spent the night, the next day they went up and then Peter went and remember the story as he got there. Remember he walked in, there was all this hubbub about, okay, now this Peter, this Jewish guy, this quote apostle came into the house and they were honoring him and they were like, you know, all we know is that God spoke to us and said, you were supposed to come here and speak to us. And as Peter began to speak, do you remember what happened? He's, he's, just, he's just barely preached the gospel. And not only did they all get saved, but the Holy Spirit came upon them just as he did on the day of Pentecost. And they all were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues and the Lord just rested upon them. And as this whole thing happened, Peter later, remember Peter took some witnesses with him and he was pretty glad he did because later he got called in on the carpet before the church and he already had to give an account of himself once on this issue saying, listen, what could we do, right fellows? You were there with me? And you know what happened? We were just there preaching the gospel and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Who are we that we can argue with God? God did this thing. This was a work of God. This is God moving so Peter here now before this Jerusalem council retells this story. And he says in verse eight, God who knows the heart acknowledged them, God acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, listen to verse nine, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. No law, no circumcision, no tithing the mint and the cumin and the dill and counting out, you know, nine for the Lord, nine for me, one for the Lord. None of that. And if God, here's, here's his argument, if God accepted the Gentiles as full partners in the church, why shouldn't we? What right do we have to dispute with God? And notice here as he, as he speaks uh, in this little passage we just read, that he said, purifying their hearts by faith. Peter showed how the heart is purified by faith, not by keeping the law. If they were purified by faith, then there was no need to be purified by submitting to ceremonies found in the law of Moses. Christians are not only saved by faith, they are purified by faith. So we are both saved and purified by believing in Jesus Christ. Now, therefore, verse 10, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples by which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So he's acknowledging to them and hoping that they will understand that no one could submit to the law of God and live. Paul says, and, and there's so many places we could go here, Romans chapters 3 and 4. You should write that down. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to go there in a minute. Really the book of Hebrews, which talks about, is talking to Jews who were trying to go back to Judaism after they had been saved. But what does it mean to be saved? How are we saved? You see, if we've come by grace and faith, 
then there's nothing that we can do that pleases God. We only please God by being in Christ. You see, we as humans, we have this sort of built-in, innate idea, especially after we've failed miserably or hurt someone, that we have to earn our way back into their good graces, don't we? What can I do to make you forgive me? What can I do to make you love me again after I've failed, after I've hurt you? And we have this works-based mentality in our relationships as believers, but you see, God doesn't hold us to that, does he? He just says, repent and sin no more. And to those of us who are the offended, just as God was the offended, just as God is the offended, what did he say? Your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. And this is how he wants us to live. Just as we were saved, so shall we then live. And he says in verse 11 there, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Whoa, back up the ship, Peter. What are you talking about? We shall be saved in the same manner as they. Isn't it that they should be saved in the same manner as we? No. That we shall be saved in the same manner as they. What is he talking about? He's talking about this thing that Jesus said. Remember the night of, the, of communion? He said, this is a new covenant. Prior to that, Jesus said that I'm, I'm putting new wine into new wineskins. You can't fit the new into the old. You can't fit the old into the new. The new goes into the new. It's a new covenant. It's new wine. It's a new way of thinking, a new way of understanding. It's that on all the law and the prophets rest on the work of Jesus Christ. He was the Messiah. If he was the Messiah and if he fulfilled all of those things, those prophecies that the prophets spoke about in the Old Testament, which were forward-looking to the Messiah, one day when he comes, he's going to do all these things. I think the height of it being really Isaiah chapter 53. When we read about what God said his Messiah would do for his people, not just for his people, but for all people. Isaiah 53, the sacrifice, the way that God would lay the sin of the world upon his son, the Messiah. So that one day on the cross when Jesus breathed his last and right before he hung his head, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And when he said that and breathed his last, it was done. It was finished means it was finished. There's nothing else that can be done. There's nothing else that can be added to it. Now here's something that's beautiful in verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. There was the one-two punch of Peter and then Paul and Barnabas. And I doubt they walked in with a game plan written out on a piece of paper. Okay, Peter, you go up in first and it's like you're the guy who warms up the crowd, right? You get them all worked up and then we'll come in and we'll slide grace right in and we'll cover this thing. No, no, this was a work of the Holy Spirit. I believe as they walked in there and they, they were in this council and they were debating and, and having it out and, and people were passionate about these things, 
that as Peter stood up, I believe Peter stood up under the, the guidance of the Spirit and he said what he said and he said, listen, I was there, I know. God spoke to me. I had to be convinced. I'm here to convince you. And now Paul and Barnabas saying, listen, what God did that day with Peter, he continued to do with us. And here's the cool thing about the multitude being silent. It showed that even though there had been much dispute, that they had an honorable heart, they had humility, they were willing to listen, and they were willing to be persuaded if they were wrong. How many of us, when we get into a dispute, are willing to be wrong? How many times are we willing to be corrected? I hope that you understand that when we open God's word and read it, when we come to church, when we put ourselves under the teaching and the authority of God's word, I hope you're willing to have a teachable heart so that God might conform us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. If we as believers are filled with pride and we are full of inflexibility, how will we ever grow? How will we ever become conformed to the image of his son? How will we ever learn humility if we think we're always right? This multitude kept silent. They were listening. They were pondering these things. They were listening to the wonders and the miracles of God. And and no doubt, this was not just human persuasion. This was the spirit of God working in and through his word, through these, these men. Verse 13, and after they had become silent... James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Let's just take a pause here. This James, remember there was another James, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. That James died back in Acts chapter 12. He was martyred. This is the James who was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, the one who wrote the epistle called James uh, later in our Bibles. So we now see that James, the Lord's half-brother, has now somehow ended up in this position sort of being the head of and speaking for the Jerusalem council. So after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, that is Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with uh, with this, the words of the prophets agree. So notice what James is doing. He's going back and he's saying, look, I'm going to the scriptures. And here's what the Bible says. So he's not just sort of giving his opinion. He's saying, look, the scriptures bear out what God did. The scriptures support what Peter said. After this, the word of the prophets agree, excuse me, and with this, the word of the prophets agree just as it is written. And he's quoting from Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. This is God saying he was going to do this. This is post-exile. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Did you get that? So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Now notice what that scripture says, all the Gentiles who are called by my name. 
they were not Gentiles who had been made Jews through the keeping of the law. They were Gentiles who were called by his name. And you say, how, did, how is it that the scribes and the Pharisees didn't know these things? Their eyes were blinded because they saw only what they wanted to see. They only held to their favorite scriptures and they put away the ones they didn't like. And that's a lesson to us. We can't do that. You see, it's the whole Bible or nothing. It's Genesis to Revelation, folks. Not only the ones that I like to read, not only the ones that say things that I agree with, it's the whole Bible. And he says in verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. In other words, God is sovereign. God is powerful. God knows the beginning from the end. It's the same thing that Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Verse 19, therefore, this is James still speaking, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch, back to the church there, with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So now they are sending back to the Gentile church in Antioch, not only Paul and Barnabas, but also these other men who were Jewish standouts, who were men who were blessed and sanctioned, so to speak, to speak for the Jerusalem church, the Jerusalem council. Now, he's going to write this again uh, in a few minutes, but in verse 20, you may wonder why these things, why abstaining from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood? Well, these are things that are prohibited in in the, the law of God, right? These are also things that the people of God struggled with throughout their tenure from the day that God gave them the law. Remember, God was giving the law up on Mount Sinai to Moses. And then he says to Moses, you better get down there. They're just, they've lost it. And as he comes down the mountain with the tablets in his hand, what's happened? They've already broken them before the law was given. What were they doing? They were worshiping idols. They were committing sexual immorality. Uh, Things strangled and, and from blood. They were performing all of these things that were anathema to God. And these things have always plagued God's people, even till now. You see, we may not go to other temples and worship all the other gods that we worship as they did in that day, but we get caught up in this all the time. We get caught up in idolatry. It's just not as visible and not quite as, as prevalent as, as it was in that day. If you worship the God of X, Y, or Z, you would go to that temple and you would worship that God and you'd give a little here and give a little there and you would worship this and worship that and move your way around. You'd buy the ones that you really like, put copies of them in your home. But today, don't we do the same thing? From things polluted by idols. 
Is there anything on television that's wholesome? Is there anything on television that encourages you to read your Bible and to draw near to God? All the shows you like to binge watch? (laughs) Is there hardly a a show out there that, that doesn't in some way bless or identify with sexual immorality? It's just out there. We just don't see it anymore, right? We're numb to it. But it's there. And for them, these were the things that were continually pulling them away. Later, Paul will deal with the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. But it wasn't just meat sacrificed to idols. It became a principle for the church. But in there, he was talking about, uh, you know, believers who have a conscience. And they might come to your house. You've invited them for dinner. And as they sit down, they might say, "Um, excuse me, which meat market did you buy this steak from? Oh, we got it from the one over on the side street, three over in the, in the, on the back row. Okay. Uh, isn't that the one that takes the used meat from the sacrificial services and they just resell it? Well, yeah, it's really cheap. Well, why don't you go get the kosher meat over here? Well, that's too expensive. Well, I'm not eating it. Why? Because in my mind, if I eat this meat which was sacrificed to an idol, I'm participating in that ceremony. And so their conscience would be defiled. And Paul went on to say, listen, eat the meat, don't eat the meat. He said, maybe it's just better you don't ask. Just eat the meat and enjoy it. Because in reality, is there really an idol anyway? I mean, are those idols really gods? We looked at this last week, Psalm 115. There's really no such thing as an idol. It's just an invention of man. It's really an invention of of Satan. So he, he, he wrote these things. And he says in verse 21, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city. So this is well known both to the Jews and even to the Gentiles who went to the tabernacle. Verse 22, Then it pleased the apostles and the elders. So there was unity of spirit with the whole church to send chosen men. So they're going to send these men out. Verse 23, Then they wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren... Uh, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from among us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls. And that is what false doctrine does. It unsettles the soul. Saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. That's not from us. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So Barnabas and Paul are sort of the connection between the church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So acknowledging these men represent the Lord, they represent the Jerusalem church, they represent the Antioch church. They are doing good. They are doing right. And it says in verse 27, We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth, saying, yes, we agree. We were there in the room. We heard it. We acknowledge it. These are not just these two guys coming back. These are two guys from the Jerusalem church bearing witness of the same message. And notice what he says here in verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Remember back in Acts 13, in the beginning, 
when Saul and Barnabas were there with those men meeting, worshiping the Lord. Remember it said ministering to the Lord. And it said there that the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, separate to me, Saul and Barnabas, for the work to which I have called them. A similar thing is happening here. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What he's really saying is we agreed with the Holy Spirit. And that's a good thing, right? You want to agree with the Holy Spirit. But these men are saying, we heard from the Holy Spirit. So all of those words of testimony that were brought from Peter and from Paul and from Barnabas, they said the Holy Spirit spoke to us. And so here's what we're doing. Because the Holy Spirit has spoken... And he's spoken to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from sexual immorality. Listen to what he says. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Do you think if we could keep ourselves from those things, we would do well today? We have the same issues. It's just a different culture and they're manifested in a different way. Now what's interesting is, is I want to go over to Galatians chapter 2 for a moment. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but in Galatians 2, Paul sort of writes his account, many believe sort of his account of what happened in Acts 15, but because as you read Galatians chapter 2, the decree of the Jerusalem Council and the events of that day are not acknowledged here, so I, I believe that Galatians chapter 2 probably happened between maybe the, what happened at the uh, church in Antioch and maybe the Jerusalem Council. But as you read uh, Acts, excuse me, Galatians chapter 2, you see there's a strong commonality with what Paul is saying here in Galatians chapter 2 and with what happened here in Acts chapter 15. Beginning in verse 11 of Galatians 2, But when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. So that's why I believe when he said when Peter had come to Antioch. For behold, certain men came from James. Before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, now, this is pretty bold, right? Usually you take somebody out to the side, off to the corner to correct them. He's correcting Peter the apostle in front of the whole church. If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So he goes on to talk about this and he's just saying, look, you're not being honest. You're not being consistent you got a taste of the freedom in Christ through the Gentiles with what God did with you in Acts chapter 10 and Cornelius' house and all that. But when the brothers show up from Jerusalem, all of a sudden you, come, you become a Jew again. He said, no, no, you're one person. You're, you're a believer in Christ. And you don't act one way when the Jews show up and a different way when the Gentiles show up. That's a lesson to us to have consistency in our character. Notice what he says in verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Isn't this what they were debating? 
but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Verse 18 is really the whole argument of the book of Hebrews. Verse 19, for I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. This is a fitting punctuation to the issue that they were dealing with in Acts chapter 15. Now to close today, I want to draw your attention, so turn with me over to 1 John chapter 5. And you'll see that the Apostle John, who no doubt was there on the day that all these things happened, and at the point John is writing the letter of 1 John is probably, probably a good 40 years after Acts chapter 15. Listen to what he writes here going to, uh, let's see, verse 13. I'm just going to kind of skip through some things here, but I want you to see that there's a consistency here. First uh, John 5:13, "These things I have written to you who believe in the name of, son, of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is a confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, and if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. Verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Verse 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The letter that they wrote about keeping themselves from idols and things strangled and all of that is, is the same thing as what John is saying here. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. But notice what he, what he says as we, can, we continue on. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Listen to it. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is John's exhortation to the church at the end of the age. Something that the... the Jerusalem Council wrote all the way back in the beginning to the Gentile churches that was just growing and, and becoming and flowering of what it should be. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You see, idolatry was something that was an issue for them and it's an issue for us today. So these things that were laid down here ultimately came down to the heart of the matter, which is what is the gospel? And the gospel is very simple. Faith alone in Christ alone. We can't add to it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You will never become worthy of it. And that's really the point. We aren't worthy. We can't be worthy. And we simply come to God by faith in Christ. 
That's the heart of the matter. The gospel is very simple. Aren't you glad that it's simple? Aren't you glad that it's simple enough for a child to understand? Many of us, I, I gave my life to Christ sometime around 8 to 10 years old. I don't remember the exact date. But I can point back to that. I don't know the exact date and the hour. I have, I have friends. I have this one friend. He, he can cite you the date and the hour with a time stamp to three digits. Because for him, it was dramatic. But the gospel is simple. Jesus died for your sins. You come to God the Father through the Son. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Do you want to be forgiven? See, the gospel, what the gospel is, is important. It's being debated even today. There are churches that have discounted the gospel or have taken it and, and they've either added things as Jesus plus or whatever they say or they've said Jesus isn't the only way. Jesus is one of many ways and they've polluted the gospel. Paul himself in the book of Galatians was emphatic when he said, if anyone comes preaching to you any other gospel than what I've preached, which is what we've just talked about, he said, let him be accursed. You see, there's only one gospel. There can only be one gospel. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. And that's it. So the question that we all need to ask ourselves today, and it's a good thing, because Peter writes in one of his epistles, he says, you know, check, discern, to make sure that you yourselves are in the faith. Are you saved? Do you believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, his Messiah? He is the only way to God. And through his death on the cross, the penalty for my sins has been paid. Through believing in him and receiving that to myself, I'm saved. I'm his child. I'm going to be with him in heaven forever and ever. My name's written in the book of life because of what Jesus has done. Is that true for you? And, and by the way, if, if you haven't believed that, if you've never understood that, then will you please right now believe and receive that so that you might be saved, so that you might come and be a part of God's kingdom, so that you might have your name on the roll of heaven, so that you can know with certainty, with hope, and with joy that you belong to him. And listen, he cleanses us, he purifies us, he sanctifies us. That means he sets us apart for his purposes. What does all that mean to you as you're believing at the beginning of your journey? Let him teach you. Read his word, open the Bible, read the gospel of John. Let him begin to minister to you. And you will see how much he loves you and how much he has in store for your life. You know, we've just been going through graduation season and we write on cards, we buy these cards for our graduates that quote Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, and the plans that I have for you, plans for a hope and for a future. God has those plans for you, whether you've been in Christ 20 or 30 years or whether you're just believing in him today. He loves you, he has a purpose and a plan for your life. Will you, will I, will we submit to that plan? Listen, if God's our creator, doesn't he know best for us? If he's our father, doesn't father know best? Are we willing to allow him to direct our lives? Listen, there's only way, one way, and that's to, to trust and obey in the word of God. 
So Lord, we love you today. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for what you've spoken to us through this this little epistle. Really, Lord, this is the first epistle you wrote to a church. It was the epistle from the Jerusalem Council to the church in Antioch. And Lord, we thank you for that. And, and what it means to us, it set the course straight. How is a person saved? Just through Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. So Lord, guide our lives. And Lord, we continue to pray. We pray for those people whom we know, whom we love, that, that don't not yet know you. They have not yet bowed the knee before you. Lord, we just continue to bring them before you this morning and say, God, would you save them? Would you draw them to yourself? And more importantly, would they, Lord, bend the knee willingly before it's too late? We love you, Lord. We bless you. We are glad that we stand upon the rock, the solid rock, the rock of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.